the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon and welcome. It is the, is it Wednesday? No, today's Thursday, isn't it? Time flies when you're having fun. Well, it's just the way the day and the show is shaping up, I guess. It is Thursday, July the 13th. Welcome to another edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts keeping you company as we do every day at this time, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Got something really important to lead off the program with tonight. And I, and I say things are kind of moving about here. It's been sort of a, a fast-moving day, and the way we plan the show at 8 o'clock in the morning is not always the way it turns out at 5 o'clock at night. But there is an issue that, quite frankly, needs to be addressed, and it's somewhat of a follow-up to some information that I shared with you on the program Tuesday. And let me begin by saying this. From a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, I think we all can concur that we are called upon to be both salt and light. The light, of course, is spreading the good news of the gospel. That goes without saying. The salt part, if you think about salt from a historical viewpoint as it was used pre-refrigeration days as a preservative, that, that, that keeping, staying, maintaining power that um, is there to provide protection for our children, protection for all the things that we hold dear and valuable, whether it's our freedoms as Americans under the Constitution, whether it is the protection of our own families, it's our responsibility to engage in being salt. That said, I'm going to share with you a story that, while specific to one community, could indeed apply to any of us, not only across the entire Bay Area, but across the state. Let me begin by setting some context here for you, that when California voters in 2016 supported the legalization and decriminalization of cannabis, of marijuana use, I don't think anybody necessarily anticipated, though perhaps we should have, that children would become collateral damage from an improperly regulated industry that prioritizes profit over children's health, local municipalities that either get greedy or trying to close budget shortfalls and so see the approval of marijuana stores as a great way to make a lot of money fall into the city coffers. But nevertheless, here we are. It should be lost to no one that for decades the tobacco industry worked diligent to make itself through their advertising and marketing appealing to younger individuals because if you can capture a child 
in smoking at an early age, they will become addicted and they will become a client, a customer for life. And that was allowed to run, quite frankly, with no restrictions, no guardrails for decades in America until slowly in the late 1960s and into the 70s, we began to wake up and realize, oh, wait a minute. Uh, even though four out of five doctors might recommend a certain cigarette ban, as they have to advertise back in the 30s and 40s, that in fact, there's an awful lot of negative health impacts related to tobacco smoking. Since the legalization of a marijuana used for recreational purposes in states like Washington, Oregon, Colorado, California, more and more research is being done that is discovering the negative impact of marijuana use. Now, yes, we hear the stories all the time, particularly for those that like to get uh, a little bit high every now and then, that it's, after all, good for mom's glaucoma or it helps relieve dad's back pain. It's a natural herb. What possibly could be wrong with it? Research is beginning to demonstrate a lot. And sadly, while some might market this as a way of relieving pain, there's a vast majority of people that use the product that, quite frankly, like your nephew, just simply desire to get high and nothing more. Now, while it's often said that you can't fight City Hall, I think we are, as believers, compelled to fight injustice and threats to those in our community that are vulnerable, be it seniors, children, or even our neighborhoods. To it, it came to our attention earlier in the week of a largely bedroom community here in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know it as Union City, that they were considering legalizing a third marijuana dispensary, which is kind of ironic in that it would make Union City sort of the capital per capita of recreational marijuana in the San Francisco Bay Area, because no other city of its size has three marijuana dispensaries. What is perhaps most disturbing about this is the fact that as Union City last Tuesday considered in a very, what turned out to be contentious city council meeting, to authorize the city's third pot dispensary, that um, they apparently have completely abandoned any sensitivity to neighborhoods, to vulnerability of individuals close by, whether it be a housing complex for senior citizens or a school or churches nearby. So as it goes, there was a proposal shared by the city manager on Tuesday. Quite frankly, if anyone was present in that council meeting can testify, it, it wasn't a report. I mean, you would think a report from the city manager would include the pros and the cons, the ups and the downs, what's good about the idea, what's bad about the idea. This instead was simply pure propaganda. All flowers and roses and completely ignoring any of the negative aspects of what this potential authorization of a third cannabis dispensary in a exclusively residential neighborhood would mean. Now, if you're thinking, Craig, a little bit of this seems to be familiar, you may be thinking somewhere in the back of your mind a story that you heard about in the last week of a violent robbery and subsequent shooting at another Union City cannabis dispensary located in Union Landing. 
And in fact, there is a other dispensary located on uh, what I guess is Union City's equivalent of Smith or Union City Boulevard. Folks coming through the greater Hayward area probably better know what is as um, what is it over there? Is it uh, Industrial Boulevard? Hesperian, as Hesperian Boulevard. Okay. So, a meeting is held on Tuesday. City manager gets up and gives just a propaganda speech in favor of this third marijuana dispensary. The gathered crowd of a probably, it was a packed house, probably 150 people that were there inside of the city hall chambers. I would say of the 60 or so individuals that got up and spoke to this proposal... Easily 95% were A, all local residents, and B, all against the approval of this medical, or I'm sorry, of this marijuana dispensary in a residential neighborhood. A residential neighborhood that is 300 feet from a senior citizen's retirement community, 700 yards from a school, probably another 700 yards from not one but two churches, and completely surrounded on all four sides by nothing but residential neighborhood. Contrasting that against the other Union City marijuana stores that are located in Union Landing, an entirely commercial area, or they're on Hesperian Boulevard, an entirely commercial area. But contrary to all of the objections brought up by local residents of Union City, contrary to complete knowledge of the violence that took place less than a week ago at another such dispensary in Union City, we have it on good authority. I'm still trying to get confirmation. It's difficult in a city like Union City with over 350 employees. You still can't get anybody to answer the phone. So we're trying to confirm this definitively. But... I have it on good authority that the city council did indeed, contrary to the desire of the residents and those that would be most negatively impacted by this pot dispensary, the city council, at the leadership and direction of Mayor Carol Dutra-Venacci, voted in favor of this anyway. The only speakers in that meeting that favored it were people that came from cities as far away as Martinez, Alameda, San Jose, all of whom, without exception, were either employees of another store of this same company or close friends of the proposed owner that wants to set up shop in Union City there in the Cherrywood strip mall, again, within 700 yards of a school within a very close proximity to um, two churches and 300 feet away from a retirement community. And yet Union City thought, this is a good idea, because after all, they're facing a $10.5 million budget shortfall. And as the city manager was eager to show everyone over the next few years, this is going to be a multi-billion dollar tax boon to Union City's coffers in spite of the hazards to children, in spite of the potential reduction in 
property values in spite of the potential ruination of the quiet enjoyment in this neighborhood. Oh, one thing that they also conveniently didn't have an answer for up to and including a representative from the police department when it was shared by this operator who has some experience operating these facilities that they were anticipating 1,000 to 1,200 customers coming in by vehicle every day into a small residential area increasing traffic by nearly 9,000 automobiles a week in operating hours that run from 8 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. And of course, the police department has done no study whatsoever as to the potential traffic impact on this residential community. Nor, of course, any thought given apparently to the impact on the residents that live in the apartment buildings, townhomes, the Senior Citizens Retirement Center, and single-family dwellings on all four sides. There's more to this story that I'm going to share with you in just a moment, but let's take a brief time out so we can stay on schedule. If you are a resident of Union City, you need to be paying very close attention. And if you're not, and you care about your neighborhood, and you care about your kids, you care about the quiet enjoyment of the place where you live and call home, then there's a lesson to be learned for each and every one of us here. And it is high time that we in the San Francisco Bay Area and as residents of a state like California, where anything goes, start paying serious attention. Because some of these issues are getting closer and closer and closer to home. And if we're not willing to stand up and say, no, enough is enough. It's not just about the money. It's about quality of life. It's about protecting citizens and the most vulnerable amongst us. If we're not willing to do that, then let's just call it quits, turn the whole thing over to the enemy, and let it implode. Because that's the direction we're heading in if we don't stand up and say something. A time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Uh, continuing the story as to what is occurring in Union City that may be coming to a town near you in the Bay Area. And as I mentioned, uh, we voted in favor of Californians did recreational marijuana. And th- I want to be clear, this is not necessarily a speech about uh, the evils of marijuana or its benefits. Uh, but, you know, I-, I think all of us can agree that, if, for example, you enjoy, I don't know, make something up, Craig, if you enjoy horse racing and you love to watch the ponies race and maybe even occasionally go and I- maybe even bet at the $2 window, I'm going to guess, in spite of your love for equestrian sport, you probably don't want to have a racetrack put in right across the street from your residential neighborhood. And certainly in the case of this, even if you are in favor of people doing what they want when it comes to using marijuana, like maybe you're in favor of people doing what when it comes to drinking alcohol, there need to be community limits. We need to be protecting our children. And we also, I think, need to recognize, and this is something that has completely fallen flat before the ears of the city manager of Union City and apparently the mayor of Union City and maybe one or two others because this apparently passed um, on at least a a three-to-one vote with the council member Jeff Wang inexplicably abstaining. He gave a nice speech about how he's morally against marijuana use and then Ford decided that he wasn't going to vote. I, I think council member Wang needs to understand if you're if you're going to recuse yourself, do it because you have a conflict of interest like 
you own a, mar- a marijuana store, not because you're against it, because if you have a moral position, why would you stand up for that moral position? But I digress. The notion of the impact on children, the gateway drug that marijuana typically is, the kind of violence. And, you know, you have to remember, this is legal at the state level, but not at the federal level, which means marijuana stores can't use regular banking. So what does that mean? That means they are cash heavy. So now make that aware, as it generally is to the criminal element who knows that at a location that backs up against a neighborhood that's surrounded by quiet neighborhoods, very little police activity there because it's just not the kind of neighborhood that attracts police activity. And then include in there the fact that you're aware that there is all kinds of pot to be had and lots of cash on hand. And it is what we call legally an attractive nuisance. We've already seen it happen a week ago at a marijuana facility in Union City where someone was shot. Now, can you imagine sitting at home watching TV in a quiet evening and a shot rings out and goes whizzing through your backyard, across your patio, into your family room and strikes your child? Because Union City City Hall didn't pay attention and put the concerns of the residents of a residential area first, but rather put their own political desires. And, you know, with a lot of political hacks, we all know the the old adage is about money, power, and pet projects. So we will look at the money, ignore the needs of the citizens, and ignore those that are going to pay the price and be the greatest impacted by this. And again, I bet if you polled everybody in the neighborhood and said, are you against another store going in? I say, you know, I'm not really in favor of it, but keep it away from schools, churches, children, and our homes, and knock yourself out. Union City provided very limited, if any, notice to anybody in this residential area that this was even being considered, which tells me this is kind of under the the quiet of night. You can find nothing posted on the website for Union City City Hall about this proposal whatsoever. And it's no wonder when they had the list of people that got up in favor of it, in addition to employees that support the idea because they have a financial interest in it. I was a little bit surprised to find out that the operator of a restaurant in the very same strip mall that has been a local community restaurant, kind of the family operated joint for many, many years, supported by the community. And he got up in glowing terms in support of this and wonderful potential neighbors with this pot store coming in. He, of course, did not disclose what I will disclose to you right now. He owns the strip mall. Granted, many retail spaces post-COVID have suffered horribly to almost financial ruin. That owners are looking for creative ways in order to make up for financial shortfalls, and I get that. What I don't get is turning on the very residents, the very residential neighborhood that has supported you for 10, 20, 30 years, and showing no regard whatsoever for the potential impact on property values, the gateway attraction to children, the additional traffic, the noise, and the potential invitation of undesirable elements up to including 
violent crimes being welcomed into this neighborhood because the owner of the strip mall and Baldi's Cafe, Peter Iliopoulos, sees money first and apparently zero regard for the neighborhood that has supported his business for more than 30 years. As I say, at this point, there's not confirmation available because they're not making it real public as to whether or not this application was approved, but I have it on pretty good authority that indeed was the case, contrary to the very vocal presentation by dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of residents in the community that would be impacted by this. Why the mayor of Union City, Carol Dutra-Vernacci, thinks this is a good idea in a residential neighborhood within 300 feet of a retirement community. And guess what? If somebody is a marijuana user and a maybe unscrupulous one that's looking for their drug fix, they come to town, you can easily see all of these nice little homes and apartments. Oh, look, there's a big retirement community that says vintage court right on it. Let's go see if we can't break in and grab something over there to steal, to turn it into cash so we can go get our marijuana fix. And I know the argument is, well, they're going to control access. There's going to be security guards. Security guards do not shoot guns. They do not arrest. All they do is observe and call the police. That's all a security guard is authorized to do. And the argument that, well, we check IDs, we're not going to let anybody in who's under underage. Yeah, that's why the ATF has a very robust operation that sends minors into stores, uh, gas stations, any location that sells liquor, beer, wine, cigarettes, and does sting operations. The number of retailers that sell to minors would be staggering. And for those of you that live in that part of Union City, you probably know that the Fremont, that, sorry, that the Safeway store on the Coto Road has more than twice been busted for selling alcohol to minors. So to tell us what you're not going to do and what you end up doing are two entirely different things. But it, it again, flies in the face of good community stewardship and responsible leadership to protect vulnerable communities and to at least have the ability to recognize in a residential neighborhood, some things make sense and some things don't make sense. Put in a beauty parlor, put in a gas station, put in a restaurant, put in a library, put in a marijuana store where the history of violence at these locations, closest which would be here in Hayward, there have been shootings and violent robberies at stores on Foothill Boulevard and elsewhere. Of course, the city council is fully aware of this and apparently could care less. So if you're a resident of Union City and you find that this is appalling and abhorrent, that the city council has just scuttled any concern over protecting its citizens and the most vulnerable then I think they need to hear from you. I urge you to make a phone call to Mayor Carol Dutra-Vernacci, who not much of a concern of apparently um, political backlash of this, considering the fact that she'll be turned out at the end of 
2024. That is, if she's not recalled before that. You can reach her at area code 510-675-5325. That's 510-675-5325. Councilmember Gary Singh, whose district this has happened in, can be reached at 510-675-5614. That's 675-5614. And if you want the complete list of all five members, you can certainly go to the Union City website, unioncity.org, and look up the city council. You'll find links to all of their email addresses and telephone numbers. Somebody's got to stand up and say enough is enough. Somebody's got to stand up and say there's an appropriate time and an appropriate place. And folks, this isn't it at either level. When the vast majority of the speakers that came before the council meeting were all local residents opposing the dispensary because of its proximity to schools, churches, a senior housing facility, significant increased traffic problems in a residential area. And then you have speakers in support of who were entirely either employees of the company seeking the permit or people from out of town recruited to show support for the business. And the proposal coming, as I say, on the heels of a violent shooting at another cannabis dispensary in Union City less than a week ago which is, by the way, still the subject of an active police investigation, you have to wonder what goes through the mind of city leaders when they show such utter disregard for the safety, the quiet enjoyment, the security of local families, homeowners, and taxpayers, all because of the greed of trying to close a city budget that's probably largely due to their mismanagement. If you look at the uh, you look at the pay schedule of most employees in Union City, they've got about a hundred or three hundred and fifty something employees. The vast majority of which are all making two hundred thousand dollars a year north. No wonder the city has a budget crisis, and yet they want to close the gap on the backs of innocent families, taxpayers, children and senior citizens and some of the most vulnerable in that community. Shame on you, City Council of Union City. And folks across the Bay Area, we need to wake up to what's going on here. This is just a microcosm of stories like this that are repeated over and over and over again. And I won't identify the listener that brought this to my attention, but I'm glad you did. I hope we've done somewhat of justice for calling this to your attention. Again, if you're a concerned citizen, if you're a lover of children, and you love our senior citizens, whether or not you live in Union City, as apparently anybody can speak in favor, how about getting on the phone and letting the mayor of Union City know how offensive you find this action? Again, Mayor Carol Dutra Venacci at 510-675-5325. That's 510-675-5325. Or Council Member Gary Singh, in whose district this travesty just passed, apparently, and um, his telephone number is 510-675-5614, 510-675-5614. Complete list of all members of the city council along with their telephone numbers and their email addresses can be found at the Union City website, simply unioncity.org. You bet we're going to continue to follow this story and see where things go and whether or not the residents of this community are protected or, quite frankly, you're just hung out to dry because it's fiscally convenient 
to apparently at least a handful of political hacks that care more about money and power and their pet projects than protecting the very residents that they were elected to serve and to protect. Shameful. Absolutely shameful. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. And uh, let me say that that little uh, preceding speech can probably all fit under the banner of if you see something wrong, do something about it. And in that spirit, my next guest has just written a book that wonderfully focuses on a couple of sisters that, that maybe in the beginning perhaps didn't even fully realize the totality of the implications, the life-saving implications of their efforts would ultimately represent. If you are familiar with Schindler's List, both the book and that incredible heart-wrenching movie, then let me introduce you to a new book called Overture of Hope, Two Sisters' Daring Plan That Saved Opera's Jewish Stars from the Third Reich. Newly released by Regnery History. By the way, uh, same fine folks that own this radio station owned that impression. And with me today, its author, award-winning investigative journalist for the New York Post, Isabel Vincent. Isabel, thank you so much for your patience and great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm curious overall. I mean, there, there's a lot of these little micro stories that went on sort of behind the scenes, but in the middle of the, the pain and, and turmoil of World War II kind of got lost to history. How did this particular story come to your attention? So um, I had a friend of a friend who went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, and saw the tree planted in honor of Ida and Louise Cook. Um, the sisters who are um, the protagonists of, of the book, and thought uh, he didn't know anything. He didn't know anything about these women. Um, why were they being honored? And so I started to do. The story came my way, and I started to do some research. And there had been a few recent articles about them because they were posthumously made heroes of the Holocaust in Britain in 2008. So at that time, there was like a renewed interest, whereas, um, you know, they were they were sort of not not so well known in 1950 when the younger sister, Ida Cook, wrote a memoir about her um about the sisters' love of opera and um, mention some of the stuff that they had done um, for the um, for the refugees that they saved. But um, they were really lost to history. And I think, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Schindler's List. I mean, Oscar Schindler, everybody, everybody knows that name. And he was honored at about the same time that the two sisters were honored at Yad Vashem. But nobody remembers Ida and Louise, but you do remember Oscar Schindler, and that's because, A, he was a man, um, and, and B, there were a lot more things uh, done about him. There were documentaries, a feature film. Um, nothing, nothing had been really done uh, about Ida and Louise. So Ida and Louise, essentially, as, as I understand it, were, were a pair of sisters that were major art supporters that happened to be living in in England at the time and do you get a sense at some point in their involvement in sort of supporting the arts that they they got an inkling as to the significant 
changes yeah. that were beginning to unfold in Germany, in particular, the kind of increased risk that many Jewish people, whether you were a shopkeeper or a performing artist or a doctor or just a regular German citizen, but of Jewish ancestry, that do you get a sense that they began to sort of gain some awareness that things were changing and not for the good in Germany? Yes. Um, so they were essentially they were just essentially opera groupies. They were they were they were great opera fans, and they started to become interested in opera in their early twenties. So this is about you know in the nineteen twenties and the in the nineteen thirties, and they just friended all of these big opera stars by standing outside uh, Covent Garden, the Royal Opera House. Um, to get the cheap seats because they had to, they had to um, line up for the cheap seats. They couldn't afford, they couldn't afford anything else because they were both essentially typists, um, as they called it in England, copying, copying typists in the law courts. Later on, Ida, Ida, the younger sister, um, becomes rather successful as a um, as a, a writer of romance. And uh, but at the beginning, they were, you know, they're pretty ordinary um, clerks. Um, so they are confronted with, um, you know, this this challenge um, where one, one of the people they they befriend is the Austrian conductor Clemens Krauss, who is Hitler's favorite conductor. And he actually says to them, I need your help saving these Jewish musicians. And they don't hesitate. Um, one, because they're like really smitten with Krauss. They think he's, you know, he, they think he's, he's wonderful. Um, but um, secondly, because once they realize, as you said, once they realize the gravity of what people are facing in the Third Reich in Austria and Germany, um, once they realize that if you're Jewish, you know, your, your rights have been, your rights have all been taken away and 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 the next step is is to take away your life um they they spring into action and they don't think about the danger at first anyway they didn't think about the danger there they they just they just wanted to help people and and that's what they did i mean it was it was it was as naive and as as sort of wonderful as that well, and, you know, sometimes people of good report, they see a problem and decide, you know, if somebody doesn't take care of it, nobody's going to do it. So let me be that somebody. And, and, and toward that end, as this began to progress, give me a sense of the the timeline. And memory serves me right. I think the the, the crystal knocks. This is sort of the, the apex at the beginning of some of the most severe action against Jewish citizens of Germany, I believe, was in 1938. They kind of they kept the act clean, at least until they got past the, uh, the Olympics. And then once the Olympics were, were over and done and Hitler got his big propaganda boost on the global stage out of it, they went back to kind of business as usual, which means a major target painted on anybody of Jewish descent. And there were regulations, as we know, put in place that you couldn't, you know, uh, somebody of Aryan descent couldn't marry somebody of Jewish descent. If you were a doctor, a lawyer, or a person that even held political office, you immediately were kicked out of office and and, and slowly but surely um, gathered up eventually by the time we got into World War II and put into concentration camps. So what, what was, what was uh, happening here in terms of the timeline, and what were some of the initial steps that the Cook sisters were beginning to take in order to try and spare the lives of these opera singers? So what they... 
So the, the timeline, their, their rescue efforts really began in around 1935. Um, right. So, so they, they kind of saw the handwriting on the wall then. Well, um, they were presented. They were presented with it by these, you know, by their the, the people they looked up to in the opera world. And um, some of the, the some of the, the first refugees they saved had already had already in the mid thirties started to look elsewhere because uh, they they saw what was happening. There, one of their first refugees um, was an opera scholar who taught at the conservatory in uh, Frankfurt, and she lost her job. Her husband was a businessman. He lost His business was Aryanized, so it was taken over by, um, it, it was taken over by non-Jews. And, and so they were really looking for a different place to go. They, um, and they, Meech and Meyer Lisa came to England, um, and the, the, the Cook sisters were entrusted with, with her care, and they they didn't know what to do with her. They didn't know why she was there, and so they they start taking her on this, you know, um, they they start taking her to all of these places that are that anybody you know coming to England for the first time might might be interested in. So they take her to all these churches. They take her to all these tourist spots. And at one point, after they've taken her to a bunch of churches, Ida says, "Well, tell me, are you Protestant or Catholic?" He looks at them and says, oh, I thought you knew I'm Jewish. And they're like, okay, but they had no clue what that meant. And so it, so once they understood that her rights and her family's rights had been, you know, slowly at first taken away and then more severely, they just both said, you know what, we're going to have to come and figure this out. We're going to come to Frankfurt and we're going to sit around over dinner and we're going to figure out what to do and so they actually go to Frankfurt in the in mid-1930s and they they've done the research and they figured that um, they could bring people into England um, on a domestic work visa or on um, a student visa that's the two ways that they could bring in refugees or if the potential refugee already had a quota number for the United States like that they were already in line to get a visa for the United States but it wasn't going to happen for another couple of years um, they could also bring them to England provided and they could wait out their time there where it was relatively safer than um, Germany or Austria at that time they could they could wait out their time there provided that they could find people to guarantee everything they needed so they're they're lodging their food for however long they were there and actually ida um and louise would go to various congregations and they would they would beg people to sort of um pool their resources in order to guarantee one person so it was a lot it was a lot of work so that's that's how they were able to to get them to get them out and if you were leaving um third reich at that time you couldn't really take anything with you i mean you you had to surrender all your assets to the nazis so a lot of people transferred their assets into jewelry and um entrusted the cook sisters with that jewelry and they would they would just wear it across the border back into england and they would like plaster the jewelry all over their um you know woolworth's marks and spencer dresses thinking that any border guard would just look at them and think oh that's got to be fake and um they worked time and again um and they were able to you know 
secure the, the, the jewelry, put it in a uh, put in a safe deposit box until the refugee arrived in England, and then they could, you know, they could sell that, and and you know that would help sustain them for for some of the time that they were there. But so they did these really gutsy things. Um, and um, and they did it, you know, in plain sight. Like when they went to interview, like they would go on the weekends to um, to an opera performance in Germany or Austria, and the opera would be put on by Clemens Krauss and his wife, who was a soprano. Uh, and they would go at night, and during the day they would interview their prospective refugees, and they would stay at the nicest hotels, like where the, the high-ranking Nazis stayed. So they were like really hiding in plain sight uh, with everything they were doing in order to, um, you know, in order to throw off suspicion. Like they, they just, and, and at one point they saw some of the Nazis, um, they recognized them at their hotels. So wow. They were, you know, once they invested, once they were invested in doing it, they went, they went all the way. And you mentioned that, yes, after Kristallnacht, it got, it got a lot, it, it got a lot more dicey. And at one point, Ida has to go to Frankfurt on her own to to help somebody get a visa for um, England. And um, her sister, her older sister Louise, in order to speed along their, you know, refugee mission, she actually teaches herself German. But Ida doesn't speak German, and, and Louise can't go because she's got work. Um, Louise, during all of this time, continues to be a typist, um, and Ida has more flexibility because she's writing romance novels and she's actually making some decent money. But she takes that money. Um, that royalty cash, and she also puts it towards um, some of her cases. Um, so it, it was it was a real commitment by, you know, it was like a, a small relief effort by these just two very ordinary, extraordinary women. Uh, yeah, and that's a good way to put it, ordinary yet extraordinary. And it, it almost comes across, you know, for context of listeners that, that are aware of Schindler's List, it comes across like the musical version of Schindler's List. I'm, I'm curious, through the course of all of your research and writing and all the information that you gathered, understanding the personalities, the motivation, the methodology, for your reader, Isabel, what do you want to see as the greatest moral takeaway, the, the greatest moral lesson in all of this? I mean, aside from the necessity to to recognize what happened during that period of time in Europe is sort of the, the, the penultimate of man's inhumanity toward man. But but aside from that, what 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 for you is the most important moral takeaway that you'd like readers to really hold to heart? Um, a few things. Um, one that um, that anybody can any anybody can really rise to the challenge if they want to and any little any any little act helps and when you look at what they did first of all you know they risked their lives going going into especially closer to the beginning of the war they risked their lives going into into the third reich but their friends also sort of supported them by doing things like you know, they would quit smoking, and they would they would use the money that they saved from 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 not smoking, and they would give it to Ida and Louise to buy um, postage for their you know for the visa applications. So they had this little network, um, and again, it's a small thing buying postage, but they had this network of people that just 
sacrificed in small ways, you know, for a larger good. And I, I was really impressed with that. The other thing is that, you know, people are super complex. When you look at um, somebody like Clemence Krauss, the, the conductor who first, you know, approached them to do this, I mean, here's a guy who was, you know, the, the favorite of Hitler and who would, you know, write letters to Hitler's secretary um, asking for the vacant Jewish apartments um, in Munich for his singers. Like after they rounded up Jews and victims of the concentration camps, their apartments were empty. So he saw, you know, he saw this opportunity for for singers and, and musicians that he was bringing from other parts of Germany to um perform at the Munich Opera, which was really sort of the, the jewel in the crown of of, um, of of the Third Reich. That was to be, Munich was to be the centerpiece of of um, of, uh, of, the, of the Third Reich culturally and artistically. Um, so, you know, here's a guy who's, who can do that, but at the same time, he's asking the Cook sisters to help him save lives. And he's risking his own life doing that. And you sort of look at somebody like that, you know, people are not black and white. They're very complicated. And you mentioned Schindler. You know, that's another example of somebody who's super complicated who um, who saves a thousand Jews because he uses them as slave labor in his factory um, and, you know, makes a lot of money doing it. Um, so, I mean, his reason for 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 saving people's lives is very complex, as was Clemens Krauss. And that but, really- you know, in the end, though, I think you'd agree, Isabel, the real key is that the difference that God made, and, you know, sometimes you're right, there, there are layers of complexities behind these stories, but I'm reminded of, of the biblical mandate that greater love hath no man than to give of his life for another. And uh, the fact that these two sisters were willing to take such great risk um, in the face of great danger, and yet do so because they so valued human life. Critically important and a lesson that, quite frankly, all of us can learn even to this very day. The book is called Overture of Hope, Two Sisters' Daring Plan that Saved Opera's Jewish Stars from the Third Reich, newly published by Regnery History. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to its author, best-selling investigative journalist Isabel Vincent for spending some time together. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.